Good morning, everyone. Well, I'm turning to my Bibles to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4, actually. And as you turn there, would you pray with me? God, in a moment of quiet, we just come to recognize how high, how exalted, how wondrous you are. You're greater than corn. You're greater than our relationships. You're greater than our families. You're greater than our loyalties here below. And you are worthy of all praise. God, would you wow us again with how great you are as we look together at your word this morning. Thank you for what you have written for us in Daniel chapter 4. It's your name I pray. Amen. Would you stand with me? We're going to read Daniel chapter 4. Beginning with verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs, how mighty His wonders, His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make it known to me its interpretation. At last Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belshazzar after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, Because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult from you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw in their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. 
I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts and the grass of the, of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. Verse 17. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones. To the end, that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will, and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. King answered and said, Belshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you, and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all under which beasts of the field found shade and in whose branches the birds of the heaven lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to the heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, And let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord, the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Verse 27. Therefore, O King, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. You can have a seat. Well, we've just read the first portion of chapter 4. In fact, there are two scenes in this chapter. Okay, And the question now is, well... What do we make of what we just read? 
Now, you can probably see that there are some similarities to the prior events of the book, right? You remember these things, that, again, we have a terrifying dream, we have the failure of the king's advisors, and then we have the provision of Daniel as God's representative. But there's some significant differences here as well, aren't there? One is that in this episode, there is no direct threat to Daniel or the faithful Jews, right? They're not in any personal danger as they were before. But a more obvious difference is who is on center stage. It's not Daniel. And it's not his friends. In fact, the events of Daniel 4 concentrate on Nebuchadnezzar. Okay? And in terms of significance, I mean, think of it this way, that of all the 43 years that Daniel served this man, 43 years, Daniel chooses to record this as his third and final note about his time with this man. Why did Daniel only write down three things? Well, remember this, that he's not writing a history of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. He's not his historian. Right? He's writing to the people of God so that they would fasten their hope and remain faithful to God even during this time of exile when they've been scattered abroad. God was still sovereign. And He would still go to tremendous lengths to rescue and to save people. And Daniel has this purpose in mind as he selects and arranges these experiences with God as it relates to these kings. And by the way, this is the last time that you will hear of King Nebuchadnezzar in this book. Okay. But something incredible, you get to hear from his own lips. So here's how I want you to think of Daniel chapter 4. Okay. I want you to think of this chapter like an Old Testament tract. Anyone ever give you a track before? Remember these things? These used to be the thing, right? Here's one. Do you know? Right? Now, page number one. Heaven. Eternal life is a gift. Right? It is not earned or deserved. Right? And these are just... Oh, here's another one. Steps to peace with God. The search. Okay? Four things God wants you to know. Right? These are just nice, short... Uh, accounts that you would want to give people to what? To inform them and to stimulate them towards faith in Jesus Christ. Daniel chapter 4, I want you to think of it like an Old Testament tract. Okay? In fact, it is the story of the conversion of the most ruthless tumultuous, overreactive person of that day, right? King Nebuchadnezzar himself. Okay, this was the same guy who, remember, was the head of gold in Daniel chapter 2. Okay? And by the way, he was probably also the guy who was on the Jews' least likely to convert list. Right? You know, there have been many people throughout history who have been on that list. Okay, Let me give you some examples. Remember this guy? Saul of Tarsus. Yeah. 
Never going to happen, right? <laughs> that guy's not getting saved. Yeah, until we get to Acts chapter 9. Well, how about the woman who washed Jesus' feet with her hair? <sighs> Don't you know Jesus? She's on the list. She's a sinner. She's a woman of the city. And the list continues, doesn't it? How about this guy? Remember this? Remember the hatchet man? Right? The man who was known as the president's evil genius under the Nixon administration? You remember that guy? Yeah. When Chuck Colson said he was born again right before he was sentenced to prison time, he was the first to go to prison. Do you think Christians had a hard time accepting that? I'm sure a lot of them were wagging their heads, right? And yet, his claim to be born again, that means to be radically transformed, wasn't short-lived, was it? He went on to found the prison fellowship ministries. It's in jails all across America. He lived on a reasonable salary. And guess what? He never sought to be in the limelight. Once he was called by Nixon himself as a ruthless man. And later on he was described by someone else as the least ego-driven, most friendly and kind person I ever knew. Here's another one that's been written down on the list, okay? Uh, he's been known as vulgar, blasphemous, if you've listened to him, conceited. But today, okay, Kanye West is proclaiming Jesus Christ is King of Kings. And his album that he released is called Jesus is King. And I'll tell you something, it's nothing short of an outburst of praise. I've listened to it. The gospel's there. Now, the one thing that Chuck Colson had and all these others before him had that Kanye West doesn't yet is time, right? But we all start somewhere, don't we? And if it's true, what's happened to him, if he's really been born again, then that's going to hold true a few years from now, right? I love it when God surprises us by saving those that we've deemed least likely to convert. Hey, let me ask you something. Who's on your list? Everyone in here has at one time or another had a little book of blacklisted unbelievers. Right? Now you know you have a list when you've stopped praying for someone. That's when you know you have a list. And when you're not praying for someone, then you're not going to be in a, available as a witness for Jesus Christ to that person. You see how that goes hand in hand? You're not going to be available to witness to them if you haven't first been praying for them. Because you've determined, ahead of God, mind you, that that person is without a hope. I'll tell you something. You need to shatter that list. It's not that your list should be small. It's that you shouldn't even have one, right? And not if we're going to help others on their journey towards repentance and faith. Because God is still in the business of redeeming the blacklist. And when I hear a hip-hop rapper talk about what Jesus has done for him, you know what I hear? I hear the echoes of Daniel chapter 4. Look at this thematic Opening, right? Daniel chapter 4. King Nebuchadnezzar, 
to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs! How mighty His wonders! His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion endures from generation to generation. Hey, did you catch who's talking here? This does not pique your interest. Yeah, Daniel's the one who's compiled this story, but the writer of this prologue and the epilogue, that's the ending, is the Babylonian king. Right? The same king who plundered Jerusalem, who built temples to Marduk, his god, who made a statue to promote himself, and yeah, and also threatened to destroy his best advisors in a furnace. Yeah, that's the same king who is here, has a proclamation to give and a testimony to share. Now, you'll notice this, this is written after the fact, right? He's, he's looking back now at what God has done. But this is different than what he said before, right? Nebuchadnezzar has made some statements before. Remember back in chapter 2 that he acknowledges that Daniel's God was the revealer of mysteries, right? And yet, what's he do? Well, he rebels against its message in the next chapter. Chapter 3 comes around and then he acknowledges that the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is able to save and he can deliver, right? And he even gives protection for Yahweh's worshipers. But you know what it was? It was, it was just impressive. He was just impressed by it. You can be impressed all you want, but bottom line was his heart was not yet changed. But something happened in this man's life before his end came. And though the timing is not given, many think that the events of chapter 4, okay, which are going to span a period of about at least eight years, at least that amount of time, occurred within the final ten years of his life. So that means he probably only lived maybe two or three years after this episode. And the change is so remarkable and it's so clear that all Daniel has to do is let us hear it from the man himself. He doesn't need to edit this, right? What's proclaimed here is what reverberates in every man, in every woman, who has truly acknowledged that God is God and they're different. They've been changed. Now look at this, number one, right? When God is acknowledged and we are changed, there is, number one, a universal proclamation. Right? King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations, languages. Hey, as far as the word can spread, I want this to be heard. Okay, there's no limits to how far I want this message to go. Whatever has happened to Nebuchadnezzar is not something he wants to keep private. You get it, right? Now, the world would prefer, and your inner fears would concur, that the privatization of your faith is the way to go. You know, just keep your faith to yourself, right? Whatever you do, don't, under any circumstances, offend someone else. That would be the worst crime, right? You know, I read the story of a man who was getting his hair cut, and even though the barber asked him a very leading question about his faith, he responded only in generalities about his salvation because he didn't want to, quote, offend him. Do you realize that what he failed to grasp was that no one comes to Christ until at some level they're offended? 
The gospel is itself offensive to human nature, to sinful pride. It's offensive. You're not going to get around that. So yeah, keep it private. And you won't offend anybody. But neither will you ever lead anyone to the truth about God. The world needs to hear about how good God is through the offense so that they actually come to acknowledge who He really is. He's God, you're not. And so what does the king hope to bring by this universal proclamation? Look at this. Peace be multiplied to you. You know what I call that? Okay, I call that a gospel aim. That's a gospel aim. Peace be multiplied to you. The goal of this open letter to the whole of the nations is this. I want peace to get increased. And you know what happens when people trust God? They obtain His peace. Isn't that exactly the prayerful desire of all the apostles who proclaimed Christ? As Peter wrote in his letter, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. How? Peter writes, Grace and peace are byproducts of hearing and receiving the good news. Okay, the peace that Jesus gives, by the way, is not as the world gives. Okay, it's a peace that calms the soul. The peace of Christ is overpowering. can't be shaken. Nebuchadnezzar now understands that the peace of God, and he desires it for the world. Now notice this, right? Verse 2, he goes on. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done. Now, I just pause there for a moment. I know I didn't finish it. You might be thinking, well, maybe he's going to share about the signs and wonders of the previous chapters, right? He's going to tell us about how God was powerful to save out of the furnace and how He was all-knowing even that which was deep in our dreams. But that's not what He's proclaiming, is He? Look at those last two words. It's what the Most High God has done for me. For me. Not what He did for Daniel. Not what He did for those Hebrews. He wants to tell the world what God has done for him. So this is what? This is a testimony of personal transformation. What we are about to hear is the great extent that God went to bring a heathen, self-inflated man to the worship of the true God. Hey, praise God for his personal work in our lives, right? What's God done for you? To what lengths has he gone in your life? And if you cannot yet observe the grace that has comforted you on every side, okay, in order to bring you to the place where you are right now, even sitting here today, then at the least do not leave without knowing this, okay, that God humiliated Himself as a crucified slave to make you clean and rich for eternity. If nothing else... May God lead you to exclaim, well, at least I know what Jesus has done for me. Right? For me. Well, Nebuchadnezzar's open letter climaxes here, right? And it's in a word of worshipful praise, verse 3. Right? How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. You'll notice that this is set in a poetic cadence, right? It's different from the story. You see how it looks like the Psalms? It looks like poetic. Right? That's the way it was written. Why? Well, because Daniel is calling attention here 
Okay, I want you to see this. Okay? And you're going to see this poetic line show up again and again throughout the book with the same message, and it's very clear. This is about God and His kingdom. You know what's fascinating? Yesterday we were reading in the Gospel of Mark with our men's study, and it has Jesus entering His ministry and His first recorded words in that Gospel. And you know what they are? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. And what ensued from there was signs and wonders of the king. The true king. Well, Nebuchadnezzar did not know the extent of it. But in his praise, he was foreshadowing all that would be fulfilled in Christ. So that's the theme. That's the theme of this whole chapter. And now we get to hear the account of what produced it. Two scenes, right, as I mentioned. And what I hope to get through today is just this first scene, okay? And it's going to answer this question, okay? What is my role? Okay. We can see clearly what God's doing. We'll see His work. But I want to know from here in this first scene, what is my role as a witness in the work that God is doing to save people, to redeem the blacklist? Okay. And firstly, you've got to understand that God often works in people's lives through what? Through crisis. Right through crisis, and for the king, this came during a season of self-dependence and affluence. Right, verse four and five. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house, and I was prospering in my palace. Right, Nebuchadnezzar had built three palaces throughout his lifetime. This one, they believe, was his most splendorous one—the one that was said to contain the hanging gardens, one of the wonders of the world. And it was a time in which he was utterly successful, in which he felt secure, you could call it the golden years of his reign. But despite the fact that God had prodded him, right, throughout the time when these Hebrews were there, with several displays of his might and his power and his wisdom, the king is spiritually lethargic, and he keeps interpreting God's work in human terms. You'll notice that even in this chapter, he never petitions God, he never prays to God, he always petitions men. Well, the crisis that God brings to him comes through what? A very ominous dream. Right? You know, an invading army would have been fine. He could have handled that. He could have fought against an army. But God gives him a dream. How do you fight a dream? God knew the way to unravel the man out of his unbelief. But you know something? God's work is always carried out with the presence and with the poise of a faithful witness. Verse 8. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the visions of my dream and its interpretation. Did you notice that the king at this point still thinks that Daniel has some kind of special endowment? He's just a, a neat guy, a different kind of guy. But he still groups him in the same class of his other magicians. And he still calls him by his Babylonian name so as to resist the true God. Well, the king relates the, king, the dream to Daniel, right? And we read through it. 
And in this dream, there's what? There's this great cosmic tree, right? It's cosmic. I mean, it, it reaches to the heavens, stretches out throughout the whole earth. You know, the idea of a tree of this stature was very common in Babylonian culture. And it also, no doubt, reflects the self-image of the king. This is sort of how the king thought of himself, right? He's big. His kingdom is huge. But at this point, remember, he's still in the dark about who or what this tree represents. But he sees this. He sees that it's beautiful. It's abundant. Everything is being sustained by it. Things are okay to this point, right? Now verse 13. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, named for an angel, a holy one, came down from heaven. And here's what he says. Chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves. Scatter its fruit. And all that's left at the end of this is a stump, right? Just a stump. Now notice in verse 15, however, this, right? Leave the stump bound with a band of iron and bronze. And notice this. Let him... You see how the pronouns change? Now it says... It doesn't say, let it be wet, as referring to the stump, but let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion, right? Let his mind be changed. Let seven periods of time pass over him. So Nebuchadnezzar does have a sense of idea that this tree does refer to a man. Now here's something else to notice from the dream, right? The purpose of it. Why did God give it? It's not left to his imagination to try to figure out why this dream occurred. It's very clear, right? Verse 17. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers. The decision is the word of the holy ones. To the end, here's the purpose, that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men. And he gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. So Daniel hears all of this, right? And the question is, well, what does a faithful witness do? Okay. Here's his response, verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. Okay. Now, was this because Daniel didn't understand the dream. Is that why he was alarmed? No. He understood exactly what it meant. And that's why it alarmed him. His reaction reveals the dismay at having to reveal to the king that what he saw was really in no wise favorable. This isn't a good thing. You know, it's easy to give good news to the most powerful man on earth. But how do you deliver the bad one? Right? Well, after a little encouragement, Daniel responds again. It's in the same verse, verse 19. He says, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. So Daniel's expression here was actually very typical of magicians during that day who would sometimes use their spells to try to remove an evil omen and to cast it on to someone else. Now, Daniel was no such sorcerer. He knew that there was no changing what God had decreed. But what his words actually reveal, okay, is first of all this, a tender heart towards the man who now faces, get this, the judgment of God. He doesn't want this to befall the king. He pities the king. 
You know, sometimes we act and we talk like we just can't wait for unbelievers to get what they've got coming to them, right? And Daniel's heart wasn't like that. And he didn't gloat over this word of judgment that was about to happen to King Nebuchadnezzar. He didn't betray a judgmental heart in the way he talked, in the way he witnessed. Should there not be more brokenness and more compassion for those who... You look at the world and they are spiritually blind and they are languishing in sin, right? They're tripping constantly. You know, Jonah pitied a dried up plant that he had nothing to do with. Remember that? The end of the book of Jonah. He pities this plant that was giving him shade that dries up. And God confronted him and he said, Should I not then pity 120,000 little ones in the city of Nineveh. You know what God was doing? He was throwing Jonah's blacklist back in his face. Because Jonah knew that God would have compassion on them if he went and preached against him. So what did he do? He ran the other way. As if he knew what they deserved more so than God. What about when that drug abuser at work gets busted and he loses his job or her job? You happy about that? Oh, they got what they got coming to them. You ever stop to think about what kind of family might be suffering on the other end that you don't see? Oh, there's nothing I can do. No? Sure? Daniel could have been silent here. Well, well, there's nothing I can do about it. It's been decreed, king. Good luck. But he speaks up, doesn't he? Right? He spoke with a tender heart towards this man. He pitied him. But he didn't just pity him. He also gave him an honest word. An honest word, right? Verse 20 to 22, right? Well, the tree that you saw, and he goes on to describe it in that 20 and 21 and look at 22, right? Listen, it's you. It's you, okay. Now, what does that remind you of? Do you remember this? Remember David after his sin with Bathsheba? And Nathan the prophet comes to him and he tells him this great story. And then he unveils the truth of it, right? The man is you! That's a high-risk message to deliver to a powerful man, isn't it? But neither Nathan nor Daniel shied away from telling the king the truth, despite whatever could have happened to them. Could have been killed. Could have been banished. But he tells him the truth. It's you, okay. And if you are to be a faithful witness for the Lord, then you need to be willing to speak truthfully, even though it may break your heart to do it, even though it may estrange you from others. God's not pleased with human pride. God can and He will work against us if we refuse to heed His warnings. People need to hear that. It's God who rules, not us. And if the king was the tree that was also now going to be a stump, that meant that a great fall was on the horizon. But in addition to this word of truth, right, this honest word, Daniel addresses the king once more at the close of this scene. Remember this, verse 27. Look at this. After he gives him the interpretation, he says, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Here's what I'm going to tell you to do. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities 
By doing what? By showing mercy to the oppressed. That your call is a king. That there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. So Daniel doesn't end with a sentence of judgment, but rather a, a note of hope. Right? In a word, what's he saying is this. Repent. Change your mind. Recognize God's rule now and demonstrate that faith by being a just man as God would have you to be. That reminds me of Paul's counsel to Timothy, right? About what the Lord's servant should be. Right? 2 Timothy 2, 24. I'll put it up here for you. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, right? But kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, Listen, correcting his opponents with what? With gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. This is what Daniel modeled for Nebuchadnezzar, right? And it's what all of us must model for the unbelievers in our life who are on that blacklist. Correction with gentleness. You need need to repent. What you're doing is a rebellion against God. But you can be forgiven in Jesus Christ. You know, it's interesting. The text doesn't tell us the king's reply. It doesn't tell us how he reacted to what Daniel said. It just leaves it right there. I think the point is this. Simply to show that Daniel was faithful to give it. To give the truth. He did it with a tender heart. He did it with an honest word. And he did it with a note of hope. And I pray that God leads you to do the same as well. And maybe you're thinking, yeah, I feel like I'm the one on that list. It's God blacklisted me. Well, I hope you see from this that He hasn't. And then you can have complete and utter forgiveness by turning to God, by acknowledging who God is. And God is gracious and He gives us time to do that. Would you pray with me? Lord, what a story. And we're just beginning to see how great and sovereign You are and how You work so wonderfully in our lives. And You were kind even in Your judgment against Nebuchadnezzar because You were turning him into Your worshiper. Lord, thank You also for Daniel and his witness. What a man who was able to speak truth but to do it with such tenderness, some compassion. And Jesus, You are the epitome of that. You speak truth to us. You tell us when we've wronged. But You're so eager to embrace us back again. So thank You. Thank You for what we've heard today. And now we just want to sing it back to You. Build our life upon You. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.